Now you are at Founders FAQ. Answers to all the possible questions of a founder. It's, it's a grind no matter what you do. And I didn't have a leg up coming in. I had to fight for a lot of stuff. And so I know how it feels, but you should always focus on the learning aspect and the make improving yourself aspect. I know it sounds like just stuff you still, you tell yourself to cope, but I didn't publicly speak at a tone that I liked um, in the beginning. I didn't make the right decisions. I didn't hire the right people. Like those are things that I just built up the tuition intuition over time. And as you do that, like you gain a lot of confidence because you start to win more. So sometimes it feels like you're not making any progress, but then it starts working and then you get to start the pattern match to all your failures and say, oh yeah, I should never do that again. Welcome to Founders of AQ. Today, my guest is Matteo Rostovac. Matt is founder and CEO of Respal, which is a no-code AI platform. Hey, Matt. Thanks for coming to Founders of AQ. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's first define what you do at Respal, and you can also give a bit brief about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Matt, you know, CEO and founder of Respell. I've been in the AI and ML space for about 10 years now. So this is just part of the continuation of that story. I have bounced around quite a bit, even though I've been in the space for a while now. I was recently founder, co-founder of custom home building startup. And then before that, I was an early team member and first data engineer at Cameo. The time before that, I was Everything from a data scientist to a data engineer to machine learning researcher and engineer and a complex system scientist. I kind of did everything in the data space. So Respell is just the, you know, just the last part of it. And I found Respell, one, just like passionately from some problem that I was experiencing myself. I you know, have deep AI expertise. I have pretty strong technical acumen. But when it came down to learning about and working with LLMs and the new modern AI stack, there's just so much to do. Everything from prompt engineering to memory to agents and how to get this stuff into production. It was tough. And for non-technical folks, especially, it was probably just impossible. So Respell is trying to solve that. And our specific lens on it is we're trying to automate no code or sorry, automate work, uh, knowledge work specifically without any code. And it's, uh, you know, we start off with a no code AI workflow builder, just drag and drop and do you kind of like Zapier. And now we're moving on to, in about three weeks, a new kind of, uh, can't say too much about it, but there's three new products coming up. Yeah, also, could you, could you give, give us a, a, a bit about the update for the next couple of weeks? So we are heading uh, your biggest update, right? Yeah, so like just what what's happening in the next three weeks? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we are, you know, we realize that you can only go so far with workflows. We know how to do them. There's been platforms for this for a while, and... I like to think of most of the work that we found out how to automate usually follows the same uh, flow as computers, which is has input, does something, output. And the goal with those is you have some stimulus response, something happens, and then you have to accomplish something else. And that's great for some tasks, but it's really bad for others. Like you can automate your email, you know, message comes in, you send a response out. You can automate a lot of decision-making, like branching and work and like analysis and research, but you can't really automate communication all that well. And it doesn't really help you when you're trying to go into a more proactive space, when you're trying to start something new, whether you're hosting a new event or you're kicking off a new project or you're doing research on a completely novel topic or doing 
you know, some kind of creation. It's, it's not very good at that. It can't automate that. And so now with AI, we can kind of bridge into those areas and do some automation in that point. And that's really what people are looking for. They don't want more of the same where you could cover that from other things. And we could become a very big company off of these existing use cases, but we want to do more. We actually want to automate knowledge work. And to do that, we have to be a bit more clever. I get it. And how did you jump into the RISPAL? And how was your story? Because most of the early stage founders, they're looking for their new startups and ideas. Like, how was uh, all the process on your end? How did you jump into the RISPAL? Yeah, I mean, I, I was searching around for a couple different ideas. And I, I wanted to build something for myself or people like me, rather. That was the first few iterations. I was going to build a you know, kind of like all-in-one SQL editor and analysis platform for data analysts and business intelligence analysts. And that, that was really exciting to me when I realized that you could use AI to, uh, you give it your database schema, and then you can ask it to write SQL for you. And I've written a lot of SQL in my life, but I hate doing it. So that was very exciting. I think another one was for more product-oriented people. How do you build like the best in class? Like if you had a, say, Asana or Linear or Jira dashboard, and it was just fully automated out the wazoo, or it had auto-created tickets. And both of these had different issues. I would say, you know, the the latter one, which was the product automation suite, was I felt that incumbents were probably going to win that battle most effectively. Instead of trying to, I had to build everything else, and then on top, I had to build the automations. And it was going to be a very tough battle to win. And on the other one, it that was where I ran into a lot of the technical problems around accuracy, around how do I I need to put in memory. I need to maybe figure out what an agent is and use that in the tech. And I that's when I just started realizing like, oh, there's there's a bigger idea here. And that was really key to it is I didn't want to have just another B2B SaaS product that solved marginal value and you know help people out, but it wasn't groundbreaking. I want to build a groundbreaking product. So that's exactly what Respell is supposed to be. Now, when I was starting it, I really knew that I had to move fast because it wasn't a, a an unobvious idea. It was very clear that there were going to be other competitors and that incumbents like like Make or Zapier might jump into the race. And I knew that we had to move really quickly and position ourselves differently and differentiate from the competition. So that's we kind of came out with the bank. We raised our both our pre-seed and our seed very quickly within the first four months of the company. And then uh, hired a team we're at seven people right now, even though we're only 10 months old. And so for a while we were a pre-seed company masquerading as a seed company. But we had to catch up to that. And I think we've definitely done that so far. In the, in the very early days, like setting up A plus team is pretty hard. How did you do that? And <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> because I know you're, you're still really tech team, right? Yeah. And I would say like our team is fantastic. You know, you could give me the, the credit, I suppose, for hiring them, but I think they also learn from each other just as much. And that's kind of key to it. I, the first two hires I made were both referrals from one of my good friends who I thought had a good eye. And I intentionally was looking for two engineers because we needed stuff built, but specifically two engineers who were multidisciplinary and generalists. And that was really important to me because it's great if you are top of the class engineer in full stack, but if you don't have like a design sense or product sense, you can find other people like that. And the really best people in the world have some sort of like passion beyond just their primary discipline, what they tend to output. And so that's, you know, the first two hires, one was more design leading, one was more product leading. And that was fantastically helpful because I am a good evaluator for good design and good product, but sometimes I can't come up with myself. And so they were the experts in that domain. And I was very happy to just have them on board and delegate to them. Be like, hey, here's roughly the experience we want. You are the experts and you can decide everything else. 
And that's kind of followed for the rest of the team too. Pretty early on, we hired a like community DevRel person and a like business generalist because we knew we were going to have to go through compliance. We knew we were going to have to do a lot of organic like guerrilla marketing. And we're, we're a very broad product. So we had a lot of work to do on the positioning. So we hired a COO about six months in. And all these people, I would say, were easy to know that they were really smart, but it wasn't easy to tell if they were good for the company. And it's really important to keep in mind when you're hiring is they may be really good. They may be like 1%, top 0.1% of their field, but that does not mean that they're automatically good for your startup. And so we had to do a trial for every single one of them. That's a policy that I put in place for Respo where every person that comes on board full-time has to trial with us. It's flexible, it's paid, it's on their schedule, but you know, we get to see their work and also they get to see how like what we're building and why and how passionate we are. And they get to, you know, get to feel that it's a rocket ship, which I hope they get imparted on. How did you find your product market? Because it's a tough thing for early stage founders and most of them struggling for a really cashy product market. How was your process and could you just describe us in that period? Yeah, well, it's definitely fair to say that we are not, you know, we have not hit PMF yet. I think we're getting very close, which is very exciting to, to feel and see, uh, especially so early in our stage, our, our journey. But early on, it's funny because I just wrote a memo on this to the team yesterday. It's like, we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know if we were consumer or business leaning. We didn't know if we would be proc-led or sales-led growth type company. We didn't know who our customer was, where to find them, what they wanted, what problems they needed to solve. And so we, we tried everything. We talked to recruiters, we talked to lawyers, we talked to salespeople and product people. And you know, across internationally, we talked to people domestically in the US. And eventually we realized that we could be a broad product. And that's probably what we want, what we want to do. But we kind of have to follow this like hourglass structure where you start up at the top of the hourglass and you're just throwing stuff at the wall and try to figure out what sticks, what resonates with customers, and then you narrow down and then that's like you're narrowed down your persona, your ICP. And you can scale with that ICP. But eventually, you know, let's say you get to Series A, Series B, and you feel pretty confident. Like that's just growing on its own, or you can put it on autopilot. You need to move out into your the other segment. So you initially set out to automate you know, the whole industry or whatever your horizontal scope spans. So you need to broaden out to that. But that's a, a later stage thing. And so we're definitely in the narrowing down probably towards the tail end of that part. And I think we eventually found just through trial and error and really thinking deeply about like what our product is best fit to serve, we found it was the X ops. It was the marketing ops, sales ops, the product ops, the data ops. If there's a function with an ops team attached to it, those are teams that are very usually very uh, time-strapped, very focused on like their whole job is to make the team that they're attached to more efficient. And uh, they fit the builder archetype that we really need when we're selling into businesses. We need someone to build the spells and to implement them and to you know, fine tune them to their ideal. And that's an ideal persona for us is XOps folks. I get it. And the other big topic of founder is finding a GTM, basically. Like how do you, in the, in the very, very early days until today, how do you handle your GTM and what was the biggest challenge on your end and what do you recommend for founders while they are finding their GTM the best possible GTMs in all the details. So just wondering your thoughts about it. Yeah, I definitely love what I you know just said before because they are kind of intermingled. I guess also we were adapting a product, of course, along the way. We're building on new integrations, new features, and 
again, throwing stuff at the wall. We, for specifically go-to-market, I, I think the biggest struggle was that I didn't know how to do early go-to-market. I you know, led our first few enterprise sales. I was the one dictating the product at the beginning. So we got a lot of self-serve out of that. I was the one talking to every customer every single time. And it was, it was exhausting because I'm not used to it. I definitely made a lot of mess ups. But I think two things changed. One, hired our COO who really knew this stuff. He knows how to sell to enterprises. And he's been doing that at his, well, since he started working. And uh, <laughs> he's gotten quite good at it. So he's, he's my mentor in, in many regards. And then there's also the, just like what we learned along the way from customers about like who is a good fit and why, what types of products they buy, why, what type of budget do they have and how do they negotiate internally? So if you're selling to, let's say an in-house, if you're in the recruiter space, if you're selling to an in-house recruiter versus a staffing firm, those are wildly different beasts. And I guess like at the start, I was like, oh, we're going to sell to recruiters. I didn't even know like what all the distinctions were. So you just kind of have to like mentally map out, especially hard for horizontal products, but even for vertical ones, you have to mentally map out like what are the types of people in the space and who specifically are we going to go after? Is it the in-house recruiters or the staffing firms? And if it is the staffing firms, who within those? Or if it is the in-house recruiters, are they the technical ones? Are they the non-technical ones? Are they you know, the head of people that may manage that in-house recruiter or the head, the lead recruiter, like who has the buying power? And so first thing we had to do was just like mentally map out for each industry that we trialed. What does this look like? And we drew lots of diagrams. We had lots of lists and lots of hypotheses. And your goal is to create as many hypotheses as possible and then either validate or invalidate them as quickly as possible. Because that's the only thing that's going to get you the learnings you need to be successful in whatever you want to do. Yeah. And I have one more question. On the early days, while getting your angel investors, like how did you pick them while in the pretty early days? And for founders who are not that resourceful, but pretty technical ones, good engineers and who are just starting a new company, how do they find a great angel investors? And then what should they do at the first place? So, I mean, first thing I'll say is like fundraising is tough, no matter who you are, what you did before. Okay, uh, maybe like Sam Altman probably doesn't have trouble fundraising. But like outside of that, uh, if you're not Sam Altman or, or one of those like you know, well-known tech entrepreneurs, you're probably going to have a lot of trouble. And I had a lot of trouble. I'm you know a second-time founder. I've been in the startup space since I dropped out of school. And it, it still takes a lot of reps. And I also had a lot of things going for me. I have been in the space. I've been talking to investors for six or seven years now. I had a lot of social capital built up that I could, you know, call to collect on. I have a lot of experience in the space. It was the peak of AI hype. So one thing to say here is like, I'm going to give some general tidbits of advice, but also realize that my advice may not translate to you because I had a couple legs up. So I may not experience the same problems. With that said, I indexed really hard on loyalty and maybe not like loyalty to myself, but loyalty to the vision in our investors. I wanted people that I can trust that are going to be just passionate about it as I am, and people that would you know not step in day to day, be like, "Hey, how's it going? Can I help? Uh, maybe you should do this, do that." I really just want investors who would lay back, say, "Hey, we trust you to take this wherever it may go. We're in it for the long haul. Let's know how how we can help, and we'll just be here whenever you need." And that was, I think, like picking those types of investors definitely helps a lot to take the pressure off, especially in the early days when, like, again, we were a pre seed company that had a seed valuation, we had a lot to do. If I had a lot of pressure, it would have been much more stressful. And maybe I would have um, slipped up on some things. And so, yeah, that trust was super, super important to us. And even all the way through our seed, which we'll be announcing by the time this podcast comes out uh, with Craft Ventures, 
I talked to a lot of funds and craft was probably the highest trust one. And I did like 20 reference checks. Also, yeah, maybe that's some advice. Do reference checks on your VCs um, always and, and every time. And I did reference checks on a lot of other firms. And I mean, craft came back with like every single person was like, we love them. You should definitely take their money. They'll help you out. And it was so easy to, to make that decision. I'll talk about my process really quickly, which was you always have to run a process. It doesn't matter if you're ready to raise attraction wise, if you're not ready to raise, you can raise money as long as you run a process. And what that means is it, one that I recommend to a lot of founders is you write out a list of every single investor that you want to talk to. And then you also write out a list of a lot of investors that your friends know, and you compile that into a list, try to get to around a hundred names. And then you go through and you tag every single one of them with every person that you know that knows them. So you're mutuals with your with you and the investor. And once you have that, you identify of those people for each person. Uh, you separate them into three buckets. One, who is the strongest relationship? Who is like the person that they love that you know? Who is the person that has, or who are the other people in that group that have a positive relationship? And what's another one? What's another group that does not have a positive relationship? They have a negative relationship. And once you segment those people, you ask the person with the strongest relationship to make that introduction. You have your first conversation. You ask the other people to say uh, to send them a message. Say, "Hey, I heard you talk to Matt from Respell. Just want to give you my two cents. He's a great guy, great founder, etc." You know, talk you up. That's called back channeling. And then don't ever tell the people that have a negative relationship to send any message. That, that should never happen because um, that could actually count against you. So once you have that list and you have those people, you pick one day and you send out a hundred emails and you schedule as many calls as you can in a shorter period of time. And once you close. Your first person is going to take you know, 20, 30 pitches. You're going to mess up a ton. I messed up a ton. But once you close one person, then they're going to help you figure out the rest. And they're going to say, hey, you should do X, Y, Z. You should talk about your company like this. Here are your strengths. And they can help you with intros as well. That was like probably the most important stuff that helped me out. Now I learned from other founders. So I want to definitely share that here. It's not easy. It's going to take a bit of time. But like, if you run a process and if you can find your positioning quickly, then you know, you can you can always raise. You're running the company as a solo founder. And <laughs> what do you think about the solo founder versus group of founder? Because it's always a hot topic and I would like to get your thoughts about it. Yeah. Well I went from co- four co-founders, my last company, to solo founder this time. It's it's very different. Um, I was the head of engineering, so technical, one of the technical co-founders at uh, at Atmos. And it's safe to say I wasn't really passionate about real estate. So I, I think like that definitely also changes the dynamic now that I'm both a CEO and a founder and I'm passionate about what I, I do. And like no shade to Atmos, like it's super cool concept. And like we tried really hard to make really cool deep tech that customers wanted, but they really wanted the service. And yeah, they're doing just fine with that. I was like, I want to build products. But that said, like for co-founders is tough because you can set it up in a couple different ways. It can be a, a dictatorship. It can be a democracy. You can have every decision made by committee when you have, well, more than one co-founder, aka yourself, and you get to kind of choose your own pain, but it's kind of always painful no matter what. On the other hand, one co-founder is also painful in a different way. It's a more emotional journey. You're the only person people will like look up to for direction and strategy. So you have to do all the recruiting. You have to do all the strategy and you have to make really good decisions um, because people are going to see that your founding team is going to rely on you. Or, I mean, their livelihood, but also because they're dreaming that this is going to win. And so there's a lot of pressure. And I'm a person that thrives under pressure. So I, I do enjoy it. And I'm also a workaholic. So I get to bounce around and you know be the 
the everything person all the time, but it is exhausting as well. And I'm very lucky to have a lot of founder friends over the past six years I've curated. I live in a founder house as well. And so I have no shortage of advice or people to lean on for emotional or professional or knowledge reasons. So it's, uh, you know, I'd probably say if you're doing a startup, like two or three co-founders, it's fantastic. So I've heard, I haven't experienced it myself, but I, I think that that's probably like the ideal numbers based on the social dynamics that come into play. But you can absolutely do it with four or, or one. If you get to like five plus, I don't know, maybe, maybe like think a little bit harder about like whether you really want to do that. <laughs> but I mean, if, if you need to do it, then that's fine. That's great. <laughs> that's great. And lastly, do we have any message to our audience and uh, also anything you want to share with, about the Respal? No, I mean, I'm hoping that you'll find Respal interesting, but more so that you, you know, I'm assuming that there's just a lot of founders listening so that you find your footing. I know that the startup journey is, is tough. I can't say that I've had a very easy path. It's, it's a grind no matter what you do. And I didn't have a leg up coming in. I had to fight for a lot of stuff. And so I know how it feels, but you should always focus on the learning aspect and the make improving yourself aspect. I know it sounds like just stuff you sell, you tell yourself to cope, but I didn't publicly speak at a tone that I liked in the beginning. I didn't make the right decisions. I didn't hire the right people. Like those are things that I just built up the tuition intuition over time. And you, as you do that, like you gain a lot of confidence because you start to win more. So sometimes it feels like you're not making any progress, but then it starts working and then you get to start to pattern match to all your failures and say, oh yeah, I should never do that again. And it's surprising how much it comes back around to help you out later on. So my advice is it's tough, but as long as you're constantly improving yourself, then you're going to make it. That's great. Matt, it's really nice to having been to founders at PQ. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me and best of luck to all. By the way, you can order Founders FAQ from foundersfaq.com. It covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey, revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus teams, creating an evolving machine, setting up a neat culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising.